0: back to the show it's episode 72 and we have Lindsay back with us the uh, the last one was so good we had you back we wanted to have you back and also wanted to correct our uh, mistakes with the recording so i think we've got everybody plugged in alex say hello hello no <laughs>
1: no i'm actually here today <laughs> yeah, you're actually on the
0: podcast so no more dubbing over <laughs> this one should be much better <laughs> anyways
1: so, Lindsay? Tell me something. You Lindsay liked my last podcast.
2: I did, yeah. I came over and Alex was like, Should we take it down? And I was like, No, it's great. It's like relatable and then I shared an embarrassing story that I could relate to her sister and I think she felt better about
1: it. Yes, tell, tell the audience.
2: Yeah. So when I was younger, I was similar to Evan in that I didn't want to miss out on anything. Like I couldn't take the 30 seconds to go to the washroom and go pee. So I would like often pee my pants. <laughs> <laughs> because I would sure enough, like someone would say something funny and I wouldn't be able to hold it. And then I would just <laughs> be in a conundrum of how to deal with my wet pants. <laughs> Um,
0: so would you like was it like a full pee? not always yeah, yeah just like a partial p <laughs> ouch
2: it's kind of like speeding it's like
1: you want to get there really fast so you speed yeah but then you end up losing more time when you get caught <laughs> and you got stopped by a police yeah. officer you're Like,
0: well, now I can- so now forever. instead of
1: like getting there a minute faster you lose 30 minutes because yeah. you have to change your pants yeah
0: when, what was the last, how old were you the last time that you peed in your, like, le- I'm not talking like oops, because like sometimes, you
1: know, we've all like, done we do that that past the last few months. months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like last, like,
0: legitimate pee in your pants, how old were you?
2: Yeah. I, I honestly don't know, but I could confidently estimate like 12. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> I actually,
0: I remember, I remember the last time that I peed in my pants, and I'll tell you when that was it was when i was 13 yeah like legit <laughs> yeah. and the, i used to ride i would take the bus home from school if i didn't have like a sport or something and so it's kind of a long bus ride because i'm from the middle of nowhere and our driveway is like probably 200 meters long mm-hmm. maybe longer and i had to pee so bad and i remember like i i got off the bus and my sister was behind Mm me and I just started like sprinting towards the (laughs) house and I didn't make it I was like 50 like no you know what I did make it and then by we used to never lock our door like it would just like our side door we just I would just open it It was fine Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason that day my my dad had locked the door and so I would go open it it didn't open and then it was just like I peed and like full-on full bladder pee in my pants age 13 that was the last time (laughs) yeah so
2: that's a good one
0: yeah it happens
1: mm-hmm. I have a pee story okay it's not about me though
0: all right it was, Never
1: sem- about you. It was submitted anonymously um <laughs> by my friend to me when it had happened so we went we were in university and it was the first year like our freshman year and so that was back when like initiation was still a thing Mm -hmm. but like it wasn't too extreme for the ski team so we went out camping it's not like hazing no it was just like you did a couple like drinking games and like the all the freshmen kind of were the ones who got the most drunk but anyways she had like her own tent and the first night got so drunk peter pants because that does happen yeah to people who get really drunk Mm It has never happened to me, thankfully. Yes. So anyways, the next morning she woke up or like whatever day it was, like or what whatever time it was in the morning, woke up, had like pee pants. And so she had to tell somebody and we had a friend who she knew, we both knew from skiing with them before. They were a senior, the girl. So, and I don't want to say any names. So the girl who peed her pants borrowed a pair of pants from the senior to wear for the day because she couldn't wear... The pants. pants that she had peed in didn't have an extra pair the next night so that that night we went whitewater that day after the first night we went whitewater rafting yep. I was so hungover that it was one of the worst days of my life so then I was like I gotta go home so a few of us left and went home some of them stayed to camp the girl who had peed her pants the first night stayed to camp the second night got really drunk peed in the fresh pants no No.
2: someone else's pants and then
1: the only pants she had available to her to drive home in in a car full of five people were the were the dry pee pants pants. (laughs) gross and i don't think we were like best friends she didn't tell me the story until like a year later (laughs) she was like it was mortifying
0: i bet people in the car were just like (laughs) (laughs) yeah. smells kind of Weird yeah. in here.
1: And you know what? She's a doctor now. Well, so... bless it.
0: <laughs> that's a really good life experience.
1: So, yeah, that's, that's a good
2: one.
0: We're just normalizing pee stories. Mm-hmm.
1: It's okay.
2: Only Cool Kids Pee their Pants. That's that from Billy it's from Madison. Billy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> Only Cool Kids Pee their Pants. <laughs> that's a great movie. Yeah. When
1: you put up that podcast, I was so nervous after recording it. I was like, I really put myself out there and kind of didn't even want it to go up. And then. So when you publish something to like be on, like be on the podcast, yeah, you have to give it like an hour to an hour. Sometimes
0: it goes up like immediately and sometimes it takes two hours. Yeah. No idea why. So I'm
1: like watching for it to be up and it's taking like, it's like three hours now and it's like I'm <laughs> yeah, checking every bad. minute thinking, I, know, I don't know how this stuff works. I'm thinking the people at Apple Podcasts have listened to it <laughs> and thought, This is so (laughs) inappropriate that we can't allow this to be on podcasts. So finally it got uploaded and it was the repeat of yours from the IBS one. So I guess maybe it took so long because it was like a duplicate. So then I came upstairs and Meredith was napping and I woke her up immediately (laughs) to fix the problem. And it went up and everyone loved it. And
0: yeah. Yeah. It was such a manic day because we weren't it even really supposed was. to record it that day. And then she's like, I want to record it now. I and have I was something like, to say. Okay, so <laughs> <me> <laughs> just, I guess I'm not working. I'll pack that up, go do it. And then right after she's like, should we down. take it down? <laughs> 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 I was like, no, I'm not. I stopped what I was doing to do this. It is up forever. I, like, I, I finished
1: typing it. and I was like, period. <laughs> Print, hot off the press, let's go do this.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> okay. There you go. Anyway. Oh, that's so
1: good. But we're um, here to talk about something much more serious We are. Today. It's like <laughs> serious faces.
0: Um, we're going to talk about uh, set point theory, settling point theory, whatever. There's about, what, five different names for the same kind of phenomenon, which is something that I get asked about sometimes. I did a deep dive about a year and a half ago. Lindsay has sort of done a more renewed deep dive into it. And, the and ho- I'm just
1: here for color. <laughs> Alex is here for color. <laughs>
0: The, um, the whole idea, and you see this thrown around a lot is like, there's that everyone has that intrinsic set point, um, body weight and your body will kind of fight to defend that set point. And, um, that's a little bit, uh, I guess probably reductionist in reality, it's a bit more complicated than that. So we're going to talk about, um, a few different, uh, iterations of the set point theory. Um, what sort of the confounding factors are, what other uh, environmental, social, behavioral factors might influence um, the set point theory and hopefully wrap it up with some tangible takeaways. So, Lindsay, have
2: at it. <laughs> <Sweet>. uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, like you mentioned, there's kind of actually four mo- like prevalent models um, to consider. So... I think I just, like, see a lot on Instagram of, like, just talking about specifically the set point model um, as if it's, like, fact. Um, and there's a lot more, I guess, like, debate and, like, a lot more unknown than your Instagram influencer might make you believe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> they never do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we have set point model, settling point model, the general model of intake regulation, and then the dual intervention model. Um, so they're all kind of interesting. I would say like set point model and settling point model are both like a little bit reductionistic. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so to kind of like summarize them a little bit, like set point model, um basically just assumes that both energy intake and expenditure are functions of body weight. So they're just responding to whatever your body weight is. So it really highlights the hypothalamus as your control center. Um, So basically, and it really relies on like the function of leptin as well. So uh, leptin is a hormone that's secreted by fat cells. Um, If you have more leptin or more fat cells, uh, then you're less hungry. And if you have less leptin, then you're more hungry. Um, so basically, if someone were to lose, say, 10 pounds, their body is going to fight to try to bring them back to their starting point. Um, and that's largely just because uh, leptin uh, decreases, you become more hungry. I would like assume that ghrelin then increases. Um, these like pressures to eat more are just kind of like overwhelming. And if you're not really like paying attention to your your energy intake, you're going to just, like, naturally gain weight back to where you started from. Mm -hmm. Um, We kind of know from just, like, uh, both, like, studies and just, like, anecdotal evidence that sometimes people, uh, when they lose weight um, and they start gaining back uh, weight, they overshoot it. So what we saw in the uh, Minnesota starvation study, um, we did see that. So they, like, withered away to almost nothing. Um, and then when they gained their weight back, there was a compensation. So they overshot what you would expect their set point to be, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. So there's kind of just like something missing there. It doesn't feel like it like fully accounts for everything that we see when we see uh, both weight loss and weight gain. Um, and yeah. And a lot of times too, I think we saw also in, I think it was the biggest loser study, like. You see people lose a lot of weight and then they gain some back, but they don't gain it all back.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the the amount that they do gain back isn't necessarily and because th- with the Biggest Loser study, they are measuring, like doubly labeled labeled water, measuring yeah. their metabolic like rates, and it's there's just there seems to be a bit of a mismatch, which just kind of indicates that it's a bit more complicated than like body weight set point eat to maintain that set point.
2: Right. Right. So that's uh set point basically. Everything is due to physiology. They don't really account for any of the environmental factors, socioeconomic factors, anything like that. Settling point is kind of similar. Um, It does kind of leave out a lot of stuff. Um, And it it purports that all of these changes are independent of your body weight. So it's basically very dependent on energy expenditure. So um, they assume that energy expenditure is an increasing function of body weight, whereas energy intake is independent of weight. So, uh, the what's it called? <laughs> <That's
1: weird. laughs> um, Elephant.
2: The <laughs> pistachio. An- <laughs> Sorry, analogy for yeah. that mm-hmm. would be like a like a reservoir, like a yeah, like a water reservoir. So, uh, it rains, so that's your your intake. It increases, um, so then more water flows out, um, and it's basically just regulated. Like that, so right. that
1: makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so that's kind it's of a like, and elephants yeah. drink out of those. Okay, water. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: it was related. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so while with like set point model theory, uh, intake uh, adjusts based on your body weight. With uh, settling point, it's uh, your energy expenditure uh, reacts to your intake and has nothing to do with body weight, but the the effect is that your body weight changes so it's more of a a byproduct Yeah, yeah exactly um so yeah so if this one was true we wouldn't see any changes in like thermogenesis no metabolic adaptation everything would just kind of like settle out based on your uh energy expenditure um so obviously that can't quite cover it because we do see um we do see adaptations so again with like the minnesota experiment um they did hit a plateau like they didn't just like wither away wither away wither away to nothing um they did eventually plateau and again we wouldn't see that um if there wasn't some kind of like adaptation going on
1: but they didn't plateau like just to clarify some people think that they stop losing weight even though they're still overweight
2: Beard, Whereas like the you,
1: Minnesota starvation study like they were really yeah, skinny yeah, yeah. 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 like so they the, their their metabolism wasn't damaged when they were still like when they still had weight to lose but weren't eating enough kind of thing correct. yeah very to different
0: say, like, starvation mode like there's not a, a a point at which you stop getting smaller you will like, humans do eventually starve the reality is it it because the Minnesota starvation experience was experiment was only. 12 months and only six months of that was really when they deprived those people of calories it, t- it takes much longer than that to actually starve to death and so what happens is metabolic down regulation is a little bit asymptotic although it does eventually approach zero but it's like it just takes a really long time for yeah. it to get to that point yeah much it's not what
1: than- it's not what it's not what pop people think no or well i shouldn't say people There's a a popular opinion out there that starvation mode is a thing. And that if you're eating too little as an overweight person, then you won't lose weight.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All agreed on that. Um, So, yeah. So, that's basically that one. Um, Yeah. The reservoir kind of thing is like a good visual. Um, And, yeah, I just can't quite account for everything either um because obviously we do see a change in like uh energy expenditure um dependent on someone's weight um okay and then the third one the general model of intake regulation very long name can't always remember it <laughs> um it gets v- like super nuanced so um this one kind of c- combines the concepts of negative feedback um that we talked about in the set point model. um, And then it has uncompensated factors, uh, which would be kind of accounted for in the settling point model. So what it says um, is that we have uncompensated factors, which are primarily environmental. And then we have compensated factors, which are primarily physiological. Um, And both of these factors are affected by our genetics. So something uh, like leptin would be compensated. So again, when we have more fat mass or for more fat cells we have more leptin as fat uh, cells decrease we have less leptin so our body is kind of um compensating or reacting to those changes. And that's well,
0: because leptin is produced in the fat cell? Yeah, well yeah, yeah
2: is released from the fat mm-hmm. cell. Yeah. Um and then environment um that it acts uh on us on on our um on our physiology and on our um it affects our expenditure and our, our weight and everything, but obviously our intake doesn't actually affect the environment at all. Um, so yeah, so this one gets super kind of into the weeds and basically like it can be boiled down to like everyone is different and everyone responds differently. Um, but in reading the research, some of it was really interesting in that like we have a, obviously our, our physiology determines how big like our stomach is, but our genetics um will influence when we start eating at like what point of hunger do we start eat, st- start eating and i thought that was interesting because i'll have like clients that like will say to me i cannot handle being hungry like period yeah. <laughs> like i know <laughs> <laughs> so then you have to come up with all of these hacks but like i mean the reality is if like your lo- your goal is weight loss you're probably going to feel a little bit hungry sometimes like <laughs> yeah. in order for it to work So that was interesting. And then another uh, part that was interesting uh, when talking about these effects were uh, the number of people that you eat with um, affects how much that you'll eat. So, and it like increases linearly with like number of people. So, two people, you'll eat a certain amount, three people, you'll eat more. It just like goes up, Um, which, yeah, I thought was also uh, really interesting. Um, This one, it's important to know that there aren't really any set points. Um, it just suggests that the level that is, the level that's defended is quite malleable. Um, but any changes, so say your environment changes, your social socioeconomic, uh, status changes, there's going to be like, they, they created an actual like simulation model and the weight fluctuated a lot. So they, they changed one factor by two times. So they doubled it. And the weight like fluctuated up and down a bunch. And then it kind of settled um, at uh, 7%. This was like, um, I guess, like a negative effect um, of this environmental factor. And it settled at a 7% greater body weight. Um, and then that new body weight was maintained as long as no other yeah. changes occurred. Um, so yeah, so kind of interesting, but also a little bit like into the weeds. And I don't know what you guys think just from my kind of explanation <laughs> of it. But I just think it it's a little bit like... Well yeah, of course. Like <laughs> everyone's different. Everyone's response a little bit different. And Settling and points are going to. And everyone's be different. environment is different and yeah.
1: changing. I I learned some when I was in psychology or studying psychology in university that if you eat with somebody who is skinny and who's eating a lot, then you will be more likely to eat more. Mm-hmm. If you're eating with somebody who is overweight, you will be more likely to eat less. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm I will admit I haven't been like I tr- I was going to do a post on that and I tried to do some research and mm-hmm. I was struggling to find anything that um like supported it. Yeah. But I, I didn't dig that deep. Well, there's probably but, like
0: that's one correlation. I mean, obviously that group size is another really important correlation. <laughs> and then there's all this research on how Like, I mean, there's all this bickering that about what causes obesity, but there is a distinct and like very positive, very tight correlation between the increase in portion sizes, at least in the U.S. Like even even look at a fast food chain like um, like McDonald's or Hardee's um, 50 years ago, like look at the portion sizes then and compare them to now. And that's just one restaurant chain. The same increases have been observed, like across really every variety of restaurant, and that correlates strongly with obesity. So there's all this research that it's—I um, can't remember the name of the, the theory. Basically, like if you put a plate down in front of someone, they're gonna eat what's on the plate, mm-hmm. probably. And so if you just—if if what goes onto that plate gets bigger and bigger and bigger, what do you think is gonna happen? Like obesity is gonna uh, rates, or anyways, are gonna go up. So I think that environment plays a lot. I think that is really important. And even though there's like a genetic component to, um, obesity, there's a, there's definitely a genetic component to hunger. Um, like that's pretty well known. I think that the environment that you're in, I mean, it's like, it loads the gun, Mm -hmm. so to say, or like, I guess genetics load the gun and your environment pull the, pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. So even when you're dealt a genetic hand, that's not as optimal, doesn't necessarily mean that there's no hope yeah
2: yeah and you see it you, yeah even just like the way that cities are set up like grocery stores in like lower income areas of cities are like harder to get to yeah and then once you get there the like fresh food can end up being more expensive yep and feed less people in your household than yeah the, like uh less healthy food or packaged food and they've done too like there's
0: i mean that like food deserts are a real problem yeah. especially in lower income areas but they have done and that's a real you know that's a, a thing that the like health zealots will get on right is if you want to fix um, obesity and chronic disease and low-income communities like subsidize and give them access to fresh foods and that's like that's their fix but then They have done that. They've put subsidized grocery stores in like quote unquote food deserts and buying and eating behaviors don't change, Mm -hmm. which then suggests like, yeah, it is an access issue, but it also is. There's like an educational component to it. There's a social component to it. It's not as easy as like, well, just give them access, give people access to fresh foods that are less calorie dense and have more vitamins and minerals and nutrients Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't like access alone doesn't fix the problem super complicated yeah
2: it is and I I don't even know if like education maybe it maybe enough education is is the answer but it like it's so like systemic and it's so much like how you grow up eating and like how your like palate and like taste for things um like develops like there's that whole (laughs) uh show on TLC I don't know if you guys have seen it where like they're trying to get this girl to eat broccoli and she is literally gagging trying to like really taste it because she just thinks vegetables are like that disgusting that's obviously extreme but just like yeah like the way that you grow up eating is going to have a huge effect and like and it's going to take like motivation and desire to change that and so then like how do you create that in in people yeah that's yep um we're all reading the book burn by herman ponser which is kind of like goes into the the next model but um uh i lost my train of thought oh he was talking about um potentially like taxing unhealthy food and from like a public health standpoint like how that would like what outcomes that would lead to and like it does sound like a good idea to me personally but i <laughs> also know that like the like backlash that you would get from people if you were to actually do that yeah um and i think you said that they have they've tried it in like some areas and it was effective but i just like i don't know if i could see it happening in a place like america <laughs> <or> yeah
0: canada <laughs> i mean europe definitely has some stronger regulations on their uh i know like their soda like, there's limitations on how much, like, you can't buy two liters of soda mm. in a lot of European locations. They have, like, just their food access is quite a bit different. Like, but also, even
1: cereal, you're like, what kind of variety is this? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's like grape Where's <laughs> the frosted flakes? Yeah.
0: There's this more regulation there.
1: And, like, even, okay, I'll say rice cakes there, they don't have flavored rice cakes. Oh, really? They have, like, plain. Yeah. yeah and i'm like where where am i what (laughs) kind of world are you living in here
0: yeah but that's like it's different if you do that in the u.s i think it would well it would just come with all kinds of pushback but i mean that's i remember like early on in the pandemic or not early on um when vaccines had just come out and they were the u.s and well everywhere was trying to figure out or get creative with how do we convince people to get this vaccine um and I remember Krispy Kreme came out and said, well, like, we'll give a free donut to anyone who has proof that they've had the, they got the vaccine that day. Like, get the vaccine, go get a donut. And that got so much pushback because a lot of people were saying, well, you know, Krispy Kreme is part of the reason why, um, you know, they they yeah, the one risk Yeah, because one factor. more donut's
1: going to put you over the edge for COVID.
0: Yeah, but then, like, there's the uh, the flip side is, like, a donut is not devoid of nutrients and that's like, there are our kids and there are people out there who suffer from hunger and starvation and food insecurity. And to them, like, yeah, is a Krispy Kreme donut optimal for nutrition? No, but it is still nutrition. And so, um, yeah, it's, I I think when you start removing food access, even if it's in the best interest of maybe chronic disease, that's is a, a bit of a slippery slope. I think in the U.S. Anyways,
2: I mm-hmm. agree. Okay. Um, okay, so then the <laughs> next inter or next model is the dual intervention model, which I think probably does the best job of kind of like encapsulating everything. Um, so with it, we have like a lower intervention level and then an upper intervention level and in between he calls it the zone of indifference and basically your weight can kind of fluctuate within that zone so say for me if I were to put myself in there it would probably be between like 140 and 147 and I can like drift within that weight or those weights Um, and there's not really like any strong feedback mechanisms like one way or the other um, to like make me heavier or, or lighter than that. And I seem to just like naturally fluctuate between those two weights. And I'm not sure if that's kind of like similar to you guys. I think like it can be like tighter than that. Like a lot of people will just like stay closer to that. Um, But anyways, he says when you drift below, leptin becomes more of a player, which we kind of already discussed uh, when we talked about set point. Um, So when you get, uh, when you lose a lot more weight, that pressure from leptin is there. Um, when you go higher there's other physiological pressures um, so things like nutrient absorption and stuff so you, w- you would absorb less nutrients um, and just kind of discard of more um, to kind of like keep your weight uh, lower um, so you could have potentially like varying settling points within that range of of indifference um, and so his explanation for why we have Uh, why like the general population um, is getting more obese is that there are also these uh, environmental pressures and so at the top level uh, the environmental pressure of predation is no longer there so um, I think a lot of people have probably heard of the thrifty gene hypothesis which is basically like my ancestors were Scottish (laughs) potato farmers um, and so my genes are made for like withstanding famine and so that's why i can't lose weight type thing um and so that would be like selecting for those genes because at some point they were advantageous um for evolution um so he's saying that's not quite it he thinks it's more of like a genetic drift situation and so uh genetic drift is when there's a change in the frequency of an existing gene variant um in a population that's more due to random chance and so in this case it's not so random but the the effect or the the pressure of predation has now been removed so there's nothing kind of like um, selecting for those people that uh, have like an appropriate amount of body fat so now it's drifting in a way where like you're seeing this allele of like this propensity to, to obesity or to gaining more fat Um, just becoming more prevalent um, and increasing uh, in occurrence uh, in our population in general. And that's generation to generation. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's not just like within like person to person.
1: So you're saying like the predation thing, there's essentially you can boil that down to like, there aren't predators who are getting these people who can't run away. Yeah. Because they've, because they're, they're too, too big, yeah. 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 So they can just like thrive in our society.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of important. And I know, like I've talked about this before. There's, I I've I've read something, and I wish I could remember the the study or the author. But basically, the the there's a, a genetic, like the genet- genetic predisposition to like to seek out food, to be a person who just has a high drive to go seek out food. That's like from an evolutionary standpoint, a great trait Mm -hmm. because it's, it makes them less susceptible to famine and starvation when food, um, scarcity is a thing, but obviously like you put that specific set of genes in a environment where like uncontrolled eating is a possibility. And you can, you can just see how that, like if someone has a high food drive has access to like any kind of food that they want, Well, now that that one that that set of genetics that were once very beneficial, now less beneficial, Mm -hmm. at least in our modern world.
2: Right. And then on on the flip side, other individuals have been like lucky and have now hit the mutation lottery, as he calls it. Um, And they can still regulate their weight and their adiposity um, because their upper intervention point hasn't really moved again from generation to generation uh, but for other p- others their intervention point has now drifted upwards and upwards yeah and that's why um we're seeing a, a higher prevalence
0: an intervention point would be the point at which your your body kicks in mechanisms to upregulate or down regulate
2: yeah 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 exactly um and yeah you can see that with just like uh sympathetic drive so that's more just li- like like fidgeting and blinking and and heart rate and all of the breathing rate and all of those things. So your body can up and down regulate on either end of those uh, intervention lines um, to kind of bring you back into that, that area. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're all just like really interesting to, to think about and like try to rationalize why we see these like phenomenons with like weight, weight, body weight and like, sticking points or settling points or whatever you want to call them um, and how we've gotten to this point as a, like, society with, like, the amount of, like, overweightness or obesity um, in society. So I think think the reason that I wanted to talk about it or just kind of go over all four of them was just to kind of explain that there are several different models and it's not just one and we're not 100% sure exactly how all of these how how body weight and uh, body weight like maintenance works Um, and yeah I personally think that like the dual intervention model makes a lot of sense but it's not without um, limitations as well yeah yeah
0: I think like anecdotally if you when you work in nutrition and you specifically work with people I think like I've and we probably all have developed the opinion that like while there are genetic factors at play, I personally think that the environmental factors are the like the stronger like that has the, a, a bigger impact to people's like day-to-day experience than genetics. Mm-hmm. That's not to say genetics don't matter because they definitely do. but the the propensity to overeat or like regulate appetite, I think if you like just take someone who has a high like, like a high drive to seek out food, just someone who's a, who's an eater, Mm -hmm. which I know plenty of people who are like that. If you give them access to, and they've, again, this has been done in, in research, they've studied this. If you give them access to, um, whole unprocessed foods, like for example, potatoes, they've done the potato study. Mm -hmm. And that was to disprove the, um, the insulin model for obesity. Uh, but if you give some, if you give people access to potatoes, which are Like, actually, a fairly well-rounded carbohydrate, like, pretty good if you're going to eat one thing. A potato is not the worst. They regulate... Even people who have a high hunger drive regulate their eating because, like, you just... There's some palate habituation. You can only eat so many potatoes in a day, and they're pretty damn filling.
2: And satiety index is, like, super high, too, right?
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. but you remove the water content and the fiber and add some fat and sugar and just make it super tasty and, like... Now they're now people will just naturally eat more of those foods. Yep. So it's it's food availability, it's exposure, it's diet I think diet pattern overall is super important. Like as people there are probably people who have a high drive to eat in like hunter-gatherer tribes <coughs> like the Hadza, which is I think Herman Pontzer is preferred like that's who he studies the most. Mm-hmm. But they just, like, they have to work really hard to get their food, number one. So they're on their feet, hunting, gathering. Because they are one of the few, like, actual true hunter-gatherer tribes that still exist. So there's a lot of effort that goes into getting food. And then when they do get food, they have to work to prepare it, clean it, eat it. And it's still only, like, even then, like, it's only going through maybe maybe one level of processing, which is, like, literally cooking it. Yeah, so. they don't have a deep fryer.
1: Yeah. I don't know when the last time you guys ate a baked potato. But like I had one two weekends ago and I was trying to eat it and I'm like, okay, this is impossible. (laughs) And then I slathered some like butter on and I was like, better. Yeah. (laughs) It was like all of a sudden the potato, it was just so much easier to eat. And it at first I was like, this potato is humongous, and then all of a sudden I put butter on it and it was gone. Yeah. And it's just amazing how much like fat contributes. Like we talked about this last week about like carb loading, just eating like plain carbs so much volume, so but hard. it's so easy to eat three thousand calories if you're allowed to eat fat and carbs. Yeah, and like when it's the cooking process is, is very different. Why well,
0: like not processed. only put butter on mine? I put sour cream and butter, <laughs> so like that makes sense. and onions. Yeah, <laughs> it was un- unbelievably delicious. My head was about to blow off. It was. I haven't had a baked potato in like years. <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, there's a few, like, there's a few really, um, I guess, well-known anecdotal bits of evidence. Um, like we were talking about earlier, Michael Phelps is a really interesting Mm -hmm. case study and everyone knows this story. Um, you know, he reported way back that he used to eat like 10,000 or 12,000 calories a day and has since, like, I, I guess they looked into that and they, they found out that he was over reporting his intake a little bit because like, even Michael Phelps is bad at reporting intake. So don't pretend so like you're don't good at reporting intake. at the end of your day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such an easy to, concept. Uh,
1: all those clients were like, oh, it's in my log now. Yeah, I'm oh, like, I'll
0: go put it in now. Don't. Just don't. Just leave it blank. Um, <laughs> have
1: you ever, have someone's clients like, oh, I just did it. You can go look now. I'm like, no, I'm good. I have better things to do.
2: <laughs> you had one job. And I always play with like, What's the nicest way to tell them that it
1: doesn't matter anymore? Yeah. Just like, hey, here's a link to this study. Yeah. Please read. Your
2: <laughs> error
0: here is likely to be about 43%. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think it. I read in, in that burn book, it tw- 29% mm-hmm. is the average amount. Uh, they over, you underestimate by 29%. And
0: then you overestimate activity by like 40 to 50%. Yeah. 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 But, um, anyway, so Michael, me, though. Michael, no, <laughs> um, Michael Phelps. Yeah. He reported super high. And even when they adjusted it down to like 8,000 or whatever, he was actually eating. That is an an incredible amount of food to eat in one day. Mm-hmm. Like I used, I used to swim. I have no idea how the dude actually swam. Like I would, you'd have to eat all day. And you're day. not
1: supposed to swim after eating. So you can imagine <laughs> the timing really issues there.
0: Coach, I, I need another... <laughs> It's only been 15 minutes, (laughs) 15 minutes, (laughs) but that's, I think a really interesting example. And then more recently, the, um, the Swedish, the Swedish, the speed skater, who during the olympic i mean he just like destroyed the like long course events and then right after released his training and eating i think his name's nils nils vanderpool maybe yeah. i don't know that sounds dutch <laughs> but i think he's swedish <laughs> anyways he might be dutch he's norwegian <laughs> but he released his training and eating and it looks it looks really similar to phelps although yeah. his his calories are lower than phelps initially reported like more than the eight thousand calories per day um range but he would be a more recent example of how this works and like their training volumes through the roof but eight thousand is like significant and so like you said that kind of gets into poncer's sort of constrained energy model of like energy consumption which just says like a, there's a, a p- there's a point at which your body's just going to be like no mm-hmm. like you can
2: keep eating but, we're but just no send it through <laughs> like, yeah we're, n- we're good thank you so yeah so what herman said about um phelps was just that like he would have been at like the the highest end of like human ability to absorb nutrients but not like superhuman not like impossible just like he's maxed out the human genetic potential to absorb nutrients to put towards his energy expenditure um but yeah basically that he, he couldn't have been eating 12,000 calories. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens when you,
0: so to talk about Ponser's theory, when someone like Phelps and like, there's obviously there's a big difference between Michael Phelps eating 8,000 calories a day and someone who's super sedentary eating, you know, four or five, 6,000 calories a day and putting on body fat. But what happens like when someone is overeating to that extent, like where does it go? Mm -hmm. Like it's obvious, it's clearly on him. It's not going to body fat, but like, why is that? Like what happens in the human body? Like I think, like wh- like what's observed in, in I'm gonna like I'm gonna say normal people, and that is people who are not um, necessarily like very overweight, not elite athletes. We're not talking about Michael Phelps, but he's it's probably happening a little bit to him. Like when you're eating in a surplus, like number one, you're even though Phelps is absorbing a lot, he's absorbing less than he like probably could if he ate like the ratio of nutrients, I guess, that he's absorbing to what he's eating is lower. Mm-hmm. So like when you eat more, you absorb less of what you eat. You poop more, mm-hmm. straight up more if it's just going through. You fidget, move around
1: more, so you just well, like also naturally like more active. the energy it takes to digest all of that food,
0: right? The thermic effect of food goes up, and that's not like that's not insignificant. No. That's pretty significant. Like how many? What is that percent wise usually? Like five? It's like five percent.
2: Yeah, depending on like what how high your protein specifically yeah would be, but yeah, I can't.
0: Not sure. So eight thousand, anyways, eight thousand calories a day. You're spending hundreds of calories a day. Di- just, just digesting, digesting that food. So that goes up. Like fidgeting goes up. Metabolic processes just upregulate. So you're just burning more energy. Even if you're not an athlete, you're burning more energy mm-hmm. than if you were to eat less. So yeah, my question about Phelps is why? Why not
2: eat less? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean <laughs> His we life could have been so much we easier. We talk
0: about
1: that with CrossFitters because we, we've we seen this like push for just like eat, eat, eat mm-hmm. at these with these high level elite athletes. Um, and I I look at that, and I'm like, that looks miserable mm-hmm. to have to just eat so, so much. And I'm not talking like, I have some clients who eat a lot, they're active, they're on their feet all day, but then there are, there are elite athletes who are eating like exorbitant amount of food. And it's like, at what point are you like, going over and above the needs like diminishing returns exactly it's like just because you can eat more doesn't mean you're actually getting more out of that much food
0: yeah i don't know and that's i think it's just a difference in theories like there's yeah there's the theory that like it's linear like activity especially like physical activity increases caloric need And then there's more of the like, there's the constrained energy model. So like Ponsers, which like there are people who have poked holes in that theory. Like Mm -hmm. that's fine. The reality is probably some mixture of the two. But like the other thing that happens with athletes, and this is why I tend more towards the constrained model, at least with, with athletes. Like I don't necessarily think you need to be eating your face off to be a lead in, especially in CrossFit, which is just, it's just, it's not an, it's not endurance. You're not on a bike. You're not doing an Ironman. You're not expending energy for 12 hours a day but also when you like very high level athletes are, they other metabolic systems become more efficient and they've measured this. And so that also supports Ponser's theory that when you eat a lot and you train a lot and you're exercising, you're super active and this is what he observed in the, ha- the Hadza tribes. They're just more efficient at doing other things. They spend less energy during the day when they're doing nothing or they're doing like more mundane, like lower intensity tasks. So, it's, you can't consider like daily activity as like one block and then exercise as another block because when you exercise more, the daily activity block is just going to get a little bit smaller. Does it get proportionally smaller? No, but it, it doesn't. It's probably not linear. Yeah, That's that makes my, a lot of sense. Does it? Because I felt like I was just... No,
1: yeah. it did. No, it did. <laughs> yeah. I think
2: so, that kind of like... Sorry, go the, ahead.
1: Oh, sorry. I was going to change the subject-ish.
2: I was just going to say that kind of like lends to um, his idea that like exercise well just like the fact i guess that exercise doesn't actually do anything for weight loss except for in like the very short term at the beginning yeah and that's because your body just kind of like adjusts to it it becomes your new normal yeah um which i (laughs) recommended the book to a client and she read it super fast and she was basically just like so that was really depressing to read and i was like (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was like sorry she was like so exercise doesn't do anything and i was like Like no, you did you finish the book <laughs> yeah it's not that it doesn't do anything and it is really good for weight loss or yeah weight loss maintenance yes um it's just not going to help you lose weight and it it's might, really good
0: for a lot of other things yeah it's like good for your health Heart. <laughs> like cardiovascular health is important muscle mass is important it does provide like a small buffer for like daily if you overeat by 100 150 200 calories in a day like it provides a buffer for that but it's not particularly good at like creating the deficit which Mm -hmm. i think is his his point any notes in
2: there too that like people try to keep it kind of a secret because that's that is like the response people are like oh so exercise is useless well no it'll help you live longer and have a better life yeah i don't care about that i just (laughs) just just want to be smaller yeah (laughs) so it's like okay, maybe we shouldn't tell people this. <laughs> yeah. And like when
0: you, the fitness industry needs that narrative out there because that, that sells fitness programs. Mm-hmm. The fact that like do this fitness program, you'll lose weight when really like do this fitness program. It's going to make you really hungry. So you're going to make sure you got a good nutrition <laughs> plan going with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which, yeah, is a tough sell. So I honestly, I understand why it might nobody's be. Nobody's f- shouting this from the rooftops. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I
1: do think like neat, like, non-exercise activity is underrated though mm. for for helping a little bit with l- weight loss like yeah. low intensity just being on your feet standing at your desk that sort of thing yep. can uh, be a pretty like significant contributing factor to like energy expenditure yeah like almost but it doesn't so spike then. your hunger like uh you know a workout may, may do or you don't have that thing in your brain where it's like oh i ran 5k i can eat yeah you know a huge the, like, dinner compulsory
0: now compulsory eating behaviors that tend to happen when people exercise. Yeah. If you go for I a I know so many walk. people
1: who have trained for marathons and gained weight mm-hmm. cuz they get back from their long run and they're like, oh, "I can have a huge brunch."
0: And really it's like, "No, you should just have like a normal brunch." Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, yeah, you do need to eat a little bit more, I think for certain yeah, some people, you can do stuff with nutrition, but it's not like what people think. Yeah. So, what I what I was going to ask was okay, so you have somebody who's Let's say like you, Lindsay, you're like, let's just say you're 145 and you might go up a couple pounds. Like say you go on vacation for a week and you're like, I'm just going to go to Italy and I'm going to eat pasta and I'm not going to care and I'm not going to work out. Like maybe you walk a lot, but you come back and you're like 148 mm-hmm. and let's just say you've been gone for two weeks and maybe that is actual like fat gain or like body mass gain, not water retention. Um, Like you could say well, I have a set point that I like, I have around 145. So I'm going to end up back at 145 naturally. But I would argue that just because of who you are and like people who are health conscious or value fitness and and activity and their nutrition, it's, it's like, you can say it's your physiology. You can say it's just because I like my body likes being around 145. But I think it comes down to a lot like behavior Mm -hmm. and education, knowing that you can control your weight. I think So that kind of supports, I guess, people who want to say, oh, they like their body likes being in a certain weight. That's my set point. Mm -hmm. But really, you are controlling it to some degree. Whereas there's other people who, you know, every time like December, January rolls around and you're in that holiday period of time, you gain five pounds. And there's research that like those people don't lose that five pounds. Mm -hmm. So that kind of goes against. I think that's one of the holes you can poke in set point theory. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough to trigger that dual intervention theory to say like, okay, you, you're like getting up there. We got
2: well, to bring you back down. Well, depends because it says that there can be multiple settling points within that zone of indifference.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and so five pounds up could be it could within, there. within there. You s- settle in quotes, settle mm-hmm. there for a while until the next December or the next vacation rolls around. And that's why people, part of the reason some people are like slowly gaining.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I also think, sorry, this is my last idea. Habits, like I think habits and the way that people's lifestyles are so ingrained, it's really hard to change habits. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know this and habits have a pretty big impact on your body weight. So like in order to change your body, like there's so many things underlying your body weight. There's almost like you could almost say there's a set point of habits
0: yeah, it's a good way to put that, actually. And your
1: your habits, because they impact... So you could really, like, change your habits, which will probably change your body weight, depending on the habits. I don't know. It just kind of goes to the fact that there's a lot of different factors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the nuance in that conversation about the, like, going on holiday, gaining three pounds, probably a lot of people don't lose it, and so that's... You do see, the like, the scale creep over time, and that, like... I think the statistic is most people actually only gain one pound over Christmas. I think that's... I've heard that uh, over the Christmas holiday, which is like, oh, that's not very much. But imagine you do that every single year and then also you take summer holidays
1: and so you do the same thing. So in 10 years, you you gain 20 pounds, which people are like, I don't know what happened. Nothing's changed. Yeah.
2: And like do people... Because I think people also stop working out. They stop like a lot of things and how long does it take them to get back, like you said, to get back to that set point of habits of like working out regularly and stuff like I think it a lot of times it takes people multiple months past that because yeah. they fall back into the habit of not doing it um so then it isn't it's not actually just those two weeks it's that you allowed your deviation from your habits to continue for a longer period of time yeah
0: so the effect of that is probably more profound than the actual gain initial gain yeah anyways
1: I think it kind of reminds me I mean obviously The post we did on metabolism, Mm -hmm. how your metabolism doesn't actually change that much. But, you know, we did that post and then we had to do another post to say like, well, we left out some context here. Like while hormones don't actually necessarily like change your metabolism, like going through menopause doesn't change your metabolism. It changes your habits Mm -hmm. because you don't sleep as well. You feel bad. Like you're even if you exercise the same amount every single day. Your intensity might be way down, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's going to have an impact. Like there are so many factors. I just don't think I think the environmental factors cannot be appreciated enough in these circumstances.
0: Yeah, it certainly can't be understated. But the the nuance there is like someone I think who does have good habits. I can I can gain a pound, two pounds on holiday, and I can come back and like aware that what I did for a week or two weeks when I was, you know, traveling or away, not typical of like my normal behavior and I can compensate for that period of time for a, another, like a maybe an equivalent period of time, but it's not like in my head, it, it's not that thing where like, Oh, I was bad so now I have to be extra good. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's like just kind of a more of a slow oscillation of behaviors and habits. And I know that I have some flexibility when I'm on holiday because I also have really good core foundational habits and I know like what dials to turn slightly. So very slightly to get back to where I feel best and I perform best and all that stuff. And it's not it, in my head. It's not because I want to look a certain way or, you know, I have to atone for bad behavior. But I think a lot of people do go there. Mm-hmm. And so now they just perpetuates the cycle of like over, way under, over, way under. And that yo-yo cycle, which maybe is like initially only a couple times a year starts to create this pattern of behavior where now it's uh, once a month and now it's weekly. And now they like people do that on the weekends and they atone during the weekdays and now they feel like shit because they have absolutely no consistency across a long enough period of time. And also they're not actually offsetting or doing a great job of offsetting caloric surplus. So the like scale is still going up. That's a really frustrating situation.
1: It's a fine line. And you see this all the time on Instagram. Enjoy the cookie. Or go on vacation, enjoy yourself. Like you're on vacation, don't track, you know? And I'm all for that. But at the same time, I do see, I, I have read studies where it's like, you see the creep. Mm-hmm. And you see that, the you know, those those drinks, the, what do you call the eggnog drinks in December can have an impact on your body weight in 10 years if you do that every year. So it's Thank like, you. you want someone to enjoy it, but you also, there also needs to be like, but you also need to be. And I hate the words on track, but you have to get back on track. But but without it being like, yeah, yeah, that that cycle of like good, bad.
2: Yeah, because I I was going to say like there was one year. It hasn't happened the last two years, but there was one year where like the eggnog drinks came out. I was like, I'm just going to put eggnog in my coffee because I enjoy it. I gained five pounds. (laughs) in the course of like while it was available i
1: just have like um like you just like in like nighttime in the fridge (laughs) is drinking the egg
2: (laughs) basically (laughs) basically and like i was like putting it in my oatmeal i was putting it in my coffee (laughs) and i was like i was like watching it happen like i checked my weight pretty frequently just to like see uh and i was just like not that concerned because like all of my underlying everything else was the same i was still tracking macros i wasn't tracking the eggnog i was just like letting it happen so then the eggnog I removed the eggnog and my weight went right back down to yeah. 140 because everything else was the same. And I think that's what happens is that other things fall apart. It's not mm-hmm. just that you're like having an extra cookie or extra like treat or whatever during the holidays. It's that like things start to fall apart and it continues for longer than you actually think it did.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, the other interesting thing, and this is going to be a change kind of a change of topic from the behavior stuff, which we can get back to, because I think that's the best I'm way good. to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. The um, I'm wondering if at any point in the research that you read, there's any mention of like epigenetic factors? Because mm-hmm. that's something that like, I also go down rabbit holes reading about sometimes because there's, um, there are like variations that can occur like within a generation. So like single nucleotide variations that occur in, in obese people like you're literally the way that you live your life and your environment and the what you expose yourself to can change like your genetics and sometimes that stops um with the person like it doesn't get passed on but also sometimes like it does like there are like transgenerational epigenetic inheritance that like
2: like the way your grandfather ate can affect your yeah your and i was genetics exactly yeah
0: so there's a couple i was trying to find this um example and i, I found it and so there's a few really famous and like this is to say like the ones that are famous the instances of this only are because they occurred to such a large population of people it's really easy to observe um so the one of the most famous ones is from the dutch famine of 1944 to 1945 So during, they called this the Dutch hunger winter. So the offspring born during the famine were smaller than those born the year before of the famine. The effects of this famine on development lasted up to two generations. And so what they found is the offspring born during the famine were found to have an increased risk of glucose intolerance in adulthood. So then they identified differential DNA methylation that was found in adults like the female offspring. who had been exposed to famine in utero, um, and that was passed down the germ line, and so they they like as obviously we've sequenced the human genome, and so they kind of have an idea of what gene this is um but that's that's one example there was an overcalic study that also correlated b m like b m i in males to like higher b m i in males born to fathers who began smoking early in life, mm-hmm. but not daughters, and so there's also like sex differences. Mm-hmm. So there's also like that's just kind of to say like our environment now, like what we have access to. Like number 1, the industrial revolution re- revolution and the agricultural revolution, like our population just boomed. And so like famine is just more of an issue than it was when we were living in caves.
2: Less of an issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. because oh sorry, less of an issue, yeah. yeah. Um so that's there's that. Then there's also like smoking and drinking and eating, which obviously like that has that has effects on it's really fun (laughs) (laughs) so fun (laughs) but that's gonna and like we're just like we are just starting to kind of learn about the effects because we just sequenced the human genome like Mm -hmm. what 15 years ago yeah and so we don't even like we don't even know we don't have all the information but like there's definitely some shit going on (laughs) (laughs) and like the effect like the multi-generational effect is i think sort of unknown and so that's just, I guess, to say I'm not trying to be a downer here, but the genetic impact, like, it is it is significant. The epigenetic impact is significant. But, again, like, the environment that you expose yourself to is, is sort of the key
2: mm-hmm.
0: still. I just think genetics is really fun. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> is that your degree?
2: Uh, my minor, yeah. So. Yeah, same. I took a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I took a lot of genetic <laughs> courses, and I, I tutored genetics through university. Yeah, Um, I guess they've been
0: doing like they've been doing this like they've been doing research in mice for decades on like these like epigenetics, but they just weren't sure the extent to which was occurring in humans although mice is, mice are actually a pretty good human model mm-hmm. and you can yeah and i don't
1: i don't want to get into it exactly. I'm, i <laughs> yeah. don't want to like confuse our audience so i'm not gonna i'm not except even except
2: for you guys talk salt i'll stay out right. of this yeah. yeah mice don't like salt neither do rats <laughs> yeah yeah so it hard. might be rats but yeah i
0: think it's both so feeding yeah. studies if you're if you're testing salt it's not gonna work it
2: doesn't work for rats yeah
0: times. anyways um so i guess bringing it back to kind of humans and the people that we work with like I definitely experience people when they come with a goal of weight loss, and like, again, this is not to say that everyone comes with a goal of weight loss or even needs to be bothered with weight loss, but some people do have that goal. And that's kind of the, um, the cornerstone of this conversation. They are seemingly doing a lot of things right and struggling with the weight loss itself. So there's either a extreme delay in weight change, or sometimes it doesn't happen without a what seems to be a um, disproportionately large push in the other direction. So I'm wondering, have you seen that? And then how do you think that like sort of real life scenarios play into whatever version of set point, settling point, dual intervention model like
2: you believe in personally? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I honestly, I feel like it, a lot of times you see like, again, those like behavioral things, like you can, see well i don't know when you see it i'm thinking of this in real time here i'm thinking of like people who have been like successful with weight loss and you do tend to hit this like point it usually ends up being about five pounds away from their goal weight where it's like oh now things are harder yeah like you're doing everything that you were doing to lose that initial 15 pounds or whatever and now now your body is definitely fighting and it's gonna have to, it's gonna get like exponentially more difficult for you to, to now lose those last five pounds because your body doesn't seem to want to um and yeah so that that would probably be due to like some of that like adaptation so again um again looking at like the the dual intervention model you're probably getting closer or past the lower intervention line yeah um. And so, yeah. So then that's when you start feeling those like physiological pressures to like push you back into the zone of indifference. Yeah, That's how I like could conceptualize it. And that's why I think that the, that model makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Um, what about you guys? I
0: agree with that. I was going to ask a follow-up question, which is, do you think that when people get to that point, I I think that sometimes it's easy to convince them like, look, like the goal weight was a little bit anecdotal. Like Mm -hmm. this, you're, you're doing really well in the, in the gym and life. You feel good. Like it might not be worth the, the effort and the lifestyle cost and the the heartache that it's going to require to lose that five pounds. When, once you get there, your body's going to fight even harder. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like, okay, you got me. (laughs) Like you don't just like push past that wall and all of a sudden things get easier. Things just continue to get more difficult. Yeah. So, um, two questions. The first one is if people in that moment kind of say like, well, screw this, like I'm not going to get there. So why try, which a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of people do do that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they are, do they get pushed all the way back up to their initial weight or is it like, do people tend to settle out like around maybe a couple pounds over sort of where they finish? And then the second question is, um, how do you even go about maintaining at that point? Because it's so like tricky if you're dieting down to get there, the reintroduction of calories, because we do have a tendency to overeat at that point needs to be done rather judiciously. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, So yeah, I think it it depends (laughs) Um, because, because yeah, like I try, I really try to stop people from dieting, Before they get to the point where they're kind of like really sick of it so that you can, so that they have some of that like motivation left to do a little bit of a reverse diet where you are like trying to add calories slowly back in. And like the fact still remains that that like someone who is naturally that weight and someone who dieted down to that weight, the person who dieted down might just habitually have to eat less calories than the person who's naturally that way. Yep. Um, that being said, you can kind of, you can try to reverse them to like their predicted maintenance calories um, and stay right around there. But I do usually find that it ends up being a pound or two or three higher than what yeah. they initially hit. And they're usually okay with that because yeah, there's that trade off of like getting to eat more food um, and still be around their weight uh their their goal weight or their final weight what was the second question
0: the second (laughs) question was um how do you go about reintroducing calories like what's the what's the approach there both from a like scientific standpoint and then also kind of a psychological motivation like a lot of I get a lot of resistance when I say like okay, now is we have to take a diet break. Um, we need to reintroduce some calories because a lot of people have worked so hard to get to that weight. Mm -hmm. Um, that when you say that they kind of panic, but it's like the, the goal here is not like you is not to keep eating this way long-term. Like it's like a a calorie deficit is a a tool to achieve a specific outcome, but it's not like there's no expectation that that is now your, Calorie target mm-hmm. forever. So how do you go about kind of reintroducing calories and then how do you manage people, people's emotions around that?
2: Yeah. I think I, like I personally, again, really like the like reverse diet method, um, where you slowly, usually slowly increase, uh, carbs and fats. Um, usually you can keep protein around the same. You can actually end up with like a lower protein intake cause you don't have to protect against, uh, muscle loss if you're not in a deficit. Um, But yeah, so I'll like, and again, like it depends on the person, like sometimes more of like a recovery diet where you just go straight back to maintenance is better for someone that does usually come with like a faster weight gain, which people usually don't like, but the reverse diet comes with more like a higher need for adherence and your hunger spikes up Mm -hmm. in like a reverse diet. You start giving it a little bit more food, a little bit more food, and it's like, Okay, great. And it starts like, re- like <laughs> rev something up. Yeah. Um and so then people find that like hunger is even worse cuz you get those like adaptations during the diet phase where you like maybe don't feel hunger as much and then you start adding food back in and the hunger goes goes up. Um so yeah, like I said you want to like save some of that like motivation and determination for for adding the food back in. I think that is the best way um if people are prepared for the hunger so I really try to like tell them that yeah um and then yeah so I kind of like sell it to them that way I say like um like we can't diet forever I think people usually are like more just uh they accept (laughs) accept it more if you sell it like it's gonna be slow but I definitely have clients that just can't like they're, like, they're just nope. like, no, I can eat like this forever, and I'm like, no, can't <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's
0: like when you think about because earlier you used the term like sticking points, which is I like that term a lot more than like set point, just because I don't like set point is such a hard and concrete, like, well, this is it, this is my set point, and even settling point kind of has that. Sticking point implies that you can sort of break through physical barriers, but it might be difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there is a misconception in the weight loss world that you can linearly lose a lot of weight. And, um, you know, if your adherence is really high, if um, you know, your habits are really good. And I think like if you're making the right adjustments calorically, like mathematically, it's certainly possible, but from a like, enjoyment standpoint, it's really, really hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the getting to those sticking points and using that to kind of inform like, okay, now would be a good time for a break because we're struggling to make progress. Like you're working really hard, like your, your mood and your, um, your desire to do this is starting to wane. And so essentially you kind of just like stepwise kind of move down towards whatever that goal weight is taking breaks, reintroducing calories, getting the metabolism back up, functioning at a more normal level. And then like, okay, now we've sort of earned the right to dabble into deficit again. So you go for it, maybe break through that sticking point and then just sort of rinse and repeat that cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's not like that is not a a quick process for most people. That's like a year, two years, you're probably doing, should be doing strength training at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like it's a kind of a a long
1: journey <laughs> i think like there's also a misunderstanding about what a plateau is people will panic if they don't lose weight in like one or two weeks like that's when okay no now we need to change something we need to like go up and go down or just go down but like two weeks without weight loss is totally normal
0: mm-hmm. yeah and so, also like-, like the
1: sticking point is sometimes hard to determine yeah and there's other bio- biomarkers you you have to look at mm-hmm. to assess like if someone's still feeling good they've lost 10 pounds and then they haven't lost weight for two two weeks it's sometimes like totally fine to just be like no just give it more time
2: especially if they I find if they've lost like a big chunk of weight like the week before or something mm-hmm. then it's like super normal then to not really see anything I think particularly in women I find it like you'll see like a like a one pound loss and then nothing yeah. for like two weeks. Yeah. My clients
1: hate when I'm like, Yep, no yep. change. And yeah. they're like, What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's not working. I'm like, just wait. Maybe just don't weigh yourself next week. But just like, let's focus on
0: Do you remember what used to happen on the biggest loser when contestants oh, would lose weight? Yeah. It would be like, they were like shamed red <laughs> like buzzer. And then they would oh, just stand so there. Sad. But like it's and they they legitimately were. Like they yeah. they thought they failed. Well, you didn't fail. Like you just yeah. didn't Lose any weight. That's totally You didn't normal. stay
1: in the sauna for long enough yeah. this morning.
0: Yeah. You drank too much water. Like, but that's what paints people's understanding of how weight loss should occur. Yeah. Not just the biggest loser, although that's a pretty offensive show, but like that, I think there's just that expectation. I'm like, well, that's not really how that works at
2: all. Yeah.
1: To like, to circle back to the behavior stuff with the diet and then, and then kind of people who go back, like re settle to their set point, what they think is their set point. It's not necessarily a it's not necessarily that they have a set point, it's that they've they've been on what they consider to be this like this diet. Their behavior has changed for a specific period of time. So the diet isn't like less food, it's it's their behaviors. And so when they go they don't necessarily like reverse diet back to a maintenance. They go back to all the same stuff they were doing before that led them to that point of needing to diet. Mm-hmm. So it that that's again that kind of goes to well, a lot of different things, but I would say underlying behavior is the takeaway.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep,
1: it's di- yeah, creating. But people will say, "Oh, well, it's my physiology," and yeah. I'm like, "I guess to some degree it could be, but also that's the point. That's the reason why like what you're doing now needs to be sustainable mm-hmm. for the long term."
2: Yeah, I think it's tough to like parse out because you want like the good ha- the habits and the like the working out and choosing the healthy food and stuff like that to be something that you do indefinitely but the like amount of food the dieting part you it can be helpful to look at as like short term yeah because like you don't have to eat this little for this long yeah but you should along the way be establishing like good habits with like food quality and stuff like that that's going to carry you through forever Um, so that you can maintain that weight loss when you start increasing calories again. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's more, uh, scalable, mm-hmm. I guess, up and down versus, yeah, getting on these like plans where it's like eat this bar at this time. And then this shake at this time. And it's then like, you are you going to do that forever? forever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so.
0: and that's, I have this, this guy who, um, he sort of struggled to, he doesn't communicate particularly well. So, um, that's a problem, but he, he struggles to implement really any habits, exercise, exercise, like his his logging is a mess. Uh, if he does it, he's very difficult. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's just very difficult to get a hold of. Um, he doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's <laughs> fine.
1: Um, his first mistake. Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> and so he's really difficult to communicate with. He's not making progress, not surprisingly. Um, but will ask me just randomly when he when he does get in touch with me. He says, "What are your thoughts on OMAD? Like one meal a day?" And I'm like, "Dude, no." <laughs> Like, no, you don't need to do something like that in order to have progress. Like we just, we need, we need to get <laughs> <on> a routine, <laughs> but it's like people, I think just, they're like, well, I can't do normal shit. So I'm just going to do this weird shit. Mm-hmm. So, cause at least that will work. And his justification was like, according to my math, uh, one pound of fat has thirty five hundred well, that's not your math. That's just <laughs> the math. My math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I can create that doing one meal a day. That's this calories, even if I'm not exercising and I'm like, I thought you were, are you not exercising? Yeah, wait, what? This is news. (laughs) But it's just all over the place. There's like a complete lack of control, which makes, like, it does make nutrition really hard because from a scientific standpoint, if we're manipulating calories and expecting a result, we need everything else to be at least somewhat controlled, like if we're treating them as variables or, yeah, as controls. And then the nutrition is the variable, but the it's problematic when there's a lot of expectation of change and there's just zero control or effort to control anything. That I, was me, just me venting. I had a,
1: <laughs> a a plan only come through this morning and I was looking at the intake form and I'm like, okay, I'll just, um, start working on this now. So I read through the form and basically this is somebody who wants to lose like a healthy individual, a healthy weight wants to lose 10 pounds and currently tracking macros, has been tracking for three three months, and it's, according to my math, a significant deficit, like 250 to 350 calories, but is not losing weight. Mm. And so then I go down, and we've recently added into our intake form how compliant were you how come what was your co- compliance like on these calories it's My favorite question in the intake it's so form. It and like it's like five and I'm like this is frustrating because <sighs> I'm gonna give her this plan which is gonna contain the exact same calories that she's on
0: and it's like and basically just
1: be like yeah that this is just the, the change you need. <laughs> yeah and it's and then you know the response was well how did you feel was good on the week weekdays was bad on the like not bad she said I struggled on the weekends mm-hmm. so I'm like well I don't this isn't a nutrition problem. This is I habits mean it's, problem. It is. It, it's like what What are you doing on the weekends? So, I mean, I'm, I'll probably ask her what the biggest struggle was and see if I can help her with that. But I mean, the macros are totally fine. Mm-hmm. It's it's tricky.
0: Yeah, I'm like I don't have a silver bullet for you.
1: Yeah, you are the silver bullet.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. you are your own silver bullet.
2: That that is tough because like in in that situation, would you maybe just try to like put her at less of a deficit and
1: yeah and see if she can adhere to it or you give them I would maybe consider I mean I like to talk with people before I do the one-time plan just to make sure that they're comfortable with the plan Mm -hmm. but like maybe you could do a lower calorie set Monday to Friday Mm -hmm. and then have a higher calorie set on the weekends with some people like that I don't even have them hit macros on the weekends I'm like just track calories and shoot for something that's like closer to maintenance Mm -hmm. and then you create you could create the deficit on the weekdays but then again you have to figure out what the actual issue is on the weekends yeah it's it's yeah you know, it's a it, it's there's a l- so tricky. many they really yeah. are <laughs> the plan bad. only's are tricky yeah when that's they come in and it's like well you I mean there's no all ongoing conversation here like you need a coach you do <laughs> I sometimes I do want to say like hey there's you know like you we could definitely help with this but <laughs> some people that's the finance financial yep. thing so you want to make sure you can help them as much as you can but it's not easy Mm -hmm. with those plans sometimes so
0: all right let's make this actionable for people listening or tangible or like you know what's the the take-home here i think if someone is um yeah if they're uh, if they adhere to set point theory and they kind of like they they believe that like what's the take-home message
2: um i think uh basically yeah i would i would say like if you're adhering to that in the sense that like you think that the body weight that you're at is like a set point and you can't lose weight. Like if you're in that kind of camp that to maybe take a look at more of like your behavioral um, habits um, and see if there's anything like an honest look at those and see if there's anything that can be improved there. Um, There probably are, sticking points and so you do have to kind of weigh um the pros and cons if you're already at a healthy body weight of going lower. Um Precision Nutrition has a really nice uh infographic um called the cost of getting lean. Oh I've seen that one yeah Yeah. that's
1: a great that's
2: that can be really helpful for people. um, and kind of, yeah, it just like sets it up nicely outside of like a, a set point or anything. It's like um yeah, the the behaviors that you have to adopt into your life consistently in order to be that lean. And of course there are outliers, like there are people who can just naturally maintain a like a really lean physique um with less effort. But I think it does a good job of like uh explaining it for like most people yeah um yeah I think that's <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that's pretty good
1: sometimes I feel I'm just a bit about myself <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I feel like oh I'm just a naturally lean person yeah. but then I after learning more about generally nutrition and habits and like some of the theories I don't necessarily think that's the case. Mm -hmm. I think I actually work really hard to stay lean. It just doesn't seem like work to me because it's just the life that I live.
2: Yeah, I think, like, the impact of how long you've been an (laughs) athlete. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, Mike makes a funny joke. One of our coaches, he, uh, because, like, Women specifically will come into the gym and be like, I want to look like that girl. And he'll be like, great, I'll put you on a six-year plan. You're going to work out six days a week. You're going to do doubles. Um, you're going to track your macros. And then people are like, oh, she looks like a man anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't want to look like her. Um, Basically.
1: <laughs> so I, You know what? Sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. No. What really grinds my gears is like, oh, she's... St- Look at how fit she is. I wish I was that young. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, young doesn't have anything to do with it. I looked
2: less fit L- when I was young. Look at yeah. what she's doing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Don't take away how hard she works because she's 30.
2: I've had a woman women say that one of my clients who had celiac, uh, has celiac disease, say that her weight loss success was due to that. Like, oh yeah, I could lose that weight if I had celiac as well. Like, what? what? <laughs> that is psychotic. <laughs>
1: Oh man,
0: that's, I I love the, uh, the, oh, just, just wait till you're my age. Everything Mm -hmm. will hurt. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, did you work out like I did? I am when you were, maybe things won't hurt because Mm -hmm. I'm doing such a good job at like my fitness and strength and joint health and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just like, whatever. Get off me. I want to live my life. Mm -hmm. But also the, the, I want to look like her. I mean, we just talked about this in a podcast a couple last week or two weeks ago. It's like, you can't, yeah. I mean, you might be able to, but like oh, yeah, the the whole bulking up thing, I'm like, you can't, <laughs> you can't work hard enough to be bulky. Yeah. Like no offense. Yeah. Most people just can't do it.
1: So I had a client once send me a photo of like this, like really elite, like triathlete being like, I want to look like her. And this person is works out, but is nothing near an elite athlete. No offense. Just that's a fact. And she was like, do you think this is possible? And my response was like, I mean, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Anything, not anything. <laughs> there, p- things are possible, but like it's not possible in the next sign. You know, year again. Like you're going yeah. on a six-year triathlon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you have to adopt that lifestyle for six to ten years. Yeah, or more. So yeah, I mean it's possible, but like you gotta buckle up. And you still might up. not look because you have <laughs> yeah, her genetics. Exactly, you're gonna look
2: like you at that yeah. leanness or whatever.
0: It's even when I was like. When I was really good at CrossFit, like when I, was, when I was beating you all the time, just like thumping you, just like so good okay. at CrossFit. Okay, that is never... No. Like lifting more, running faster, all of that stuff. You remember?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I didn't look anything like you. Like you put us like side by side, you'd be like, oh, that girl's way fitter. Because you're just like leaner, like you have more lean body mass. You just like your muscles look different on your bones. Wow, I still kicking your ass. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I think
1: the I mean we value different things. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh I I only have four ab muscles. That's okay. all that's the best I'll do ever. But I think the the important takeaway is the like it's tempting to adhere to these kind of like schools of thoughts and these doctrines and get really dogmatic with nutrition and um in fitness and just like belief systems and that's just kind of our culture but the reality is it's just it's a lot more complicated like than that usually especially with regards to anything with weight loss is is multifaceted and it's going to have a you know there is the genetic component there's the behavioral component there's the environmental component there's like socioeconomic there's what you do for work like are you a single parent there's all these things that 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 play um a role in it and there are people that have plenty of success that you would look at their situation and think like, holy shit, how does this person do it? And they, they just do it because they have figured out what the limitations of their situation are, is like what the constraints of their life is, are, are. are. <laughs> and they work around those. Mm-hmm. I think there's when people aren't willing to look and, and be a real, realistic and understand what their constraints are and then how can I maximize my potential given my situation, then you, that's kind of when they run into, um, to problems. So,
1: yeah. I think the ultimate takeaway is <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't take we away should from just my do a whole, whole podcast of
1: takeaways. <laughs> take <laughs> the ultimate takeaway is like you are in control mm-hmm. at least to some degree. Yeah. You're not at the whim of of just a, a number. No. Like it's not like no effort is going to change anything. I don't think that's I think that's the ultimate takeaway unless Lindsay you have another takeaway. A second takeaway <laughs> what you think <laughs> to might that might be
2: a, a set point might just be a sticking point. Yeah. Um sticky. A sticky point. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, I enjoyed this. Yeah. We went down many rabbit holes.
2: Yeah, I, we um, tangents
0: there, but it was it was good. I love tangeny <laughs> podcasts. So yeah, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, thanks for me. We'll make again. this more regular. But. Yeah, and
1: and then for those of you listening, if you want to, we're gonna put something up a voter box where you submit whether you like having Lindsay on the podcast <laughs> or if you don't. Lindsay, and yes then, or no? <laughs> it will, it will be, all be anonymous, so, so don't worry. no judgment.
0: But we will see your name. <laughs> But yeah, um, thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye.